You are listening to Booze, Bullshit, and True Crime. I'm Bree. I'm Wade. And we're going to talk about some gnarly shit. Some gnarly gnarly shit. Some gnarly. So how you doing today, babe? I'm okay. Slightly stoned. He's got a, a bad tummy and he's trying to force down some whiskey on top of that bad tummy right now. Yeah, I don't know how well it's going to go, but fuck it. It's Friday. And I'm the one being like peer pressure. I've been drinking gin since... I don't know, an hour and a half ago. And I'm like, you gonna get your whiskey? You gonna drink? You gonna drink? You gonna get your whiskey? She's always like that on recording. <laughs> Are your notes done? You ready to record? Hey, hey, do you want to drink now? It's important to me. I, I'm sure it is important to you, but... Well, I'm so happy you asked, but I had a wonderful day today. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. I'm glad that you, <laughs> glad I asked you that. I got up and tended to the chickens in the garden and all that. And now we are going to do a podcast episode for you. So the title of today's episode is Till Death Do Us Part. Which I don't know if we've ever actually explained it explicitly on the episode. And I'm sure it's all of our friends that are listening, at least right now at this point. But Wade and I are married. Aww. Aww. Love you. So. Oh my god. (laughs) We thought it would be fitting to do an episode about spouses who fucking murder each other. She felt it would be fitting. I love Snapped. I I know you do, and actually my story comes from Snapped. Oh my god, I love it so, so much. So I kind of didn't really do like a whole big background, because I was just going to let you guys know that, you know, there's an episode on Snap, plus there's a new documentary coming out about my story. So if you guys really, really, really want some backstory to it, and like full in-depth eight-episode fucking Ooh, documentary, yeah, watch it. Okay. Well, I'm happy that yours came from Snapped. I did two shallow dives, and they were both women that murdered their husbands. Because okay. I thought, I know this sounds really bad, but I thought doing <laughs> a story about a man murdering his wife, like, it happens so often, and it's something that's so, like, I don't know. I did two shallow dives, and they're both women that fucking whack the shit out of their That's husbands. hilarious, because I had the same thought process. Yeah. I was like, men do this all the time. Let's see what crazy women I could find that yeah. murdered their husbands or mistress, or what is it, mistresses? Mistresses. 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 I'm too Mistresses drunk for that already. I have no idea. Anyways, let's get going. We've already People wasted People that they fuck minutes. that aren't their wives. Yeah, there you go, that thing. We can banter a little bit. It's our fucking podcast. Yeah, but then once we go over a certain time, then I have to edit a bunch of okay. shit. And murder. 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 <laughs> so, I did some background um, and psych. Honestly, mostly psych for this episode, because we were kind of saying how, like, it's mostly men that do it, and it's kind of rare when women, do, when women do it, so I was going to get into it. Um, we might as well capture this entire episode, just fuck the patriarchy. That's, like, all of my background. Okay. <laughs> I'll drink to that. <laughs> Thank you. It's just... Alright. Let me get into it. You'll see. <sighs> so. Warm. The word uxaricide? Uxaricide. I can't say it very well. Uxaricide? Uh, are you kidding me? I We've done, the... what, five episodes? I fuck up every goddamn <laughs> episode because I can't pronounce shit. That's Don't true. Ask I'm me. asking you that. I actually wrote the, like, 
pronunciation <laughs> at the very top of my notes. And I'm still like, is that right? It sounds really weird. Uxaricide. It is from a Latin term meaning wife, um, and then side meaning to cut or to kill. So this is the term for murdering someone's wife or romantic partner. So that's what we did both of our stories on, was uxaricide. It can refer to the act itself or the person who carries out the act. And the killing of a husband specifically is called mar- mariticide. The one that she didn't write down. Right. I didn't write down the pronunciation. I wrote down the word. Well, yeah. That one's not as hard. So two specific words, two specific things, both murder. Though overall rates of spousal violence and homicide in the U.S. have declined since the 1970s, which honestly kind of thoroughly surprised me, so that's good. Um, rates of... God damn it, where's the pronunciation? Uxaricide? Uxaricide. Okay. Rates of uxaricide are much higher than rates of mariticide. Which is the murder of a husband. Maybe I should just stop using those terms and just, like, say murdering a wife and murdering a husband because I'm already struggling. Uh. Of the 2,340 deaths at the hands of intimate partners in America in 2007, female victims made up 70% of these victims. FBI data from the mid-70s to the mid-80s found that for every 100 husbands who kill their wives in the United States... About 75 women kill their husbands. However, wives are more likely to kill their husbands than vice versa in some U.S. cities, including Chicago, Detroit, and Houston. So, like, women were more prevalent in those cities, which I thought was interesting. Um, Also, St. Louis. The murdering of a wife, those rates have varied among... (laughs) Leave me alone, I can't say the fucking word. They have varied among different demographic subgroups. So it's about 8.5 times more common in African-American cultures than white American cultures and about 7.5 times more common in interracial marriages, which I, I have no idea, but maybe that's just the pressure from society being in that kind of marriage or maybe those people are just fucking crazy. But from the study that... I'm pulling my notes from it was saying that, you know, slightly more likely in those varied racial groups, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, it's kind of fucked up, though. Rates of uroxercide, I'm going to say it, seem to fluctuate across Western cultures, just like I mentioned. So in certain cities it was more women, but usually it's more men. Approximately seven women... um, that are killed in England per month in Wales, approximately four per month in Australia, and this is all at the hands of, like, their lovers or their husbands. So four per month in Australia and approximately 76 women per month in the United States. So I just want to take a second. That's a big difference. Four women in Australia per month, um, seven women in England and Wales per month, and 76 women in the U.S. are being killed at the hands of their intimate partner. That's a lot. That's a big difference. Yeah, but, I mean, I don't know. Never mind. I was going to say, what is your rebuttal to that? Like, that's just England, sad. Australia, and America, they're completely different. You know, they're bigger each other so yeah obviously with the more vast population you're going to have higher murder rates are you sure about that 
No, that's why I wasn't going to say it. I know <laughs> absolutely nothing about, like, population and geography, so I have no idea. Uh, There's a lot Lowell. of people in the United States. We sound so fucking stupid right now. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Moving on. Anyway. <laughs> um, so 76 women per month in the U.S. No matter what, no matter what the fucking population is, that is sad. That's super sad. That's 76 women a month that are dying at the hands of men that just feel like they want to take their lives, which is super upsetting. Um, this data did come from different years, and the United States has a much higher population than the UK or Australia, so you were right about that. But, still, But also, England is supposedly one of the biggest drinking... I don't know what to fucking call it, but we have higher DUIs and, you know, drunk driver accidents and shit like that than the UK. We have higher everything. Americans like to indulge. It has been suggested that men who kill their partners specifically experience both an unconscious or I would say subconscious dependence on their wife and a resentment of her at the same time. These men which wish to leave the relationship but unknowingly perceive themselves as too helpless to do so, which accumulates into a belief that killing the wife is the only way to be free of her. This approach also offers an alternative explanation for instances where a man commits murder of his wife and subsequent immediate suicide right after. The man ends his life not due to guilt, but instead due to his perceived helplessness and dependency. So I read this online, and I was like, that's kind of Freudian, also kind of interesting. Thought I would stick that in there. In slightly more than two-thirds of U.S. spousal homicides, a verbal disagreement escalated to the homicide, which, I mean, makes sense. Cohabitating women are at greater risk of domestic violence and murder than married women, so women that are just residing with the men that they're romantically involved with and not married to yet. Research has found that cohabitating women are nine times more likely to be killed by their intimate partner than married women. A number of possible reasons for this finding have been studied. Cohabitating women are more likely to be younger, have a lower level of education, and are more likely to bring children from a previous relationship into their home and their new intimate partner. Um, and I think just the fact that, like, when you're dating, you don't always completely know that person. Yeah, you're still getting to know that person. Yeah, so crazy stuff can happen. Um... Additionally, cohabitating relationships have higher separation rates, and males in these types of relationships may not feel in control of their intimate partners and may feel threatened by male sexual competitors. So if you break up with baby mom and baby mom will start seeing someone else, whatever. Research has found that a large proportion of uroxicide cases follow on from the male believing that his female intimate partner has been unfaithful or the female partner attempting to end the relationship and them getting upset. Research has shown that females often experience increased abuse following the termination of a relationship, which I can attest to. That definitely happens. An Australian study found that of a sample of uroxicide cases, 47% of women were murdered by their male intimate partner within two months of separating. Sexual jealousy may be a possible reason for the heightened risk following separation. So, like... Everybody gets jealous and 
doesn't want to see that girl with somebody else. It's more than that, though. If you're killing somebody, like, you're so upset that you can't control that person or what that person does with their body or with their own romantic relationship or whatever the fuck that you murder them. I just, all of this research made me, like, sick to my stomach. It was really hard. I edited out a lot. Um, Another risk factor for uroxicide is estrangement. Women who choose to leave their partner are at a higher risk of spousal homicide. So let's say they're married and they separate or even if they're not married and they're not completely broken up. These crimes have been termed abandonment homicides and are most commonly committed by men with childhood histories of abandonment and trauma. Oh, so sad. In conjunction with markedly low serotonin levels and frontal cortex damage that contribute to poor impulse control. That's fucking cool, though. Mm Mm-hmm. That they can pinpoint that. The male is more likely to kill his mate before she has had the chance to form a new relationship with another man as he fears she will then devote her reproductive resources to a male rival's offspring. So, like, in the, like, like animalistic, like, base sense, that's what they think is going on. The greater age disparity between spouses creates a higher risk for spousal homicide. For a male, the damage associated with infidelity is greater when the partner is younger. A woman's fertility decreases as she gets older. Therefore, age is a key indicator of reproductive uh, success. As a result, a man will place high levels of importance on a mate with greater reproductive value. A man is more likely to engage in hands-on killing methods when the mate has a high reproductive value. Hands-on refers to more violent methods such as using weapons, drowning, stabbing, and strangling, so like right up close. Mm -hmm. We are still animals. Um, Some instances of uroxicide are facilitated by the culture of the victim and the perpetrator, which I will tread super lightly um, on this topic, but for example, honor killings where a man kills his wife because she has brought some shame upon their family, are approved in some male-dominated patriarchal societies, which I believe honor killings, correct me people if I'm wrong, but that's kind of an Asian culture thing. Pretty sure you're right. Yeah. Ooh, is that whiskey not good? No, it's good. It's just not going down right. He's making a face over there. Give me the chills. Well, I do know also I've had friends... From Jordan, um, Israel, countries in that area. Um, And I know that if a woman commits adultery, she can still legally be stoned in public. Right, yeah. Because I have a friend that I worked with at the place that I just recently quit, and she had told me that 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 was. And I I think she grew up in, did she grow up in Jordan? Somewhere in that general area, but yeah, she had watched women get stoned just for, like, committing adultery. Um. Burr, 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 burr. Where nice. is it? <laughs> Approximately 42% of female victims of honor killings worldwide were killed because it was believed they had committed a sexual impropriety. So not, like, it wasn't even proven. Other facilitating culture norms include discriminatory family laws and articles in the criminal code which display leniency towards honor killings. 
So, i.e., a husband like killing his wife because she cheated. In Turkey, it has been reported that little social stigma is attached to honor killings. And around 37% of those living in conservative areas believe that adulterous women should be killed. These attitudes favoring honor killings have also been echoed amongst children and adults in Jordan and India. There you fucking go. In Uruguay, a judge may exonerate a man from punishment for killing a woman if he did so because she was unfaithful. Oh my god, I feel like we're getting so far and things are getting so much better and then I read shit like that and I'm like, that is so terrifying. That's, that's so scary. Uroxicide can be prevalent in countries where honor killings aren't considered acceptable as well. In South Africa, for example, as many as five women are estimated to be killed each week by an intimate partner. It has been suggested that this high rate of uroxicide is result to, or a result of the prevalence of violence in South African society and how it is deemed socially acceptable in many circumstances. Conservative attitudes towards women in this society have been suggested to facilitate uroxicide. Studies conducted in Italy exhibit similar findings, reporting that a man's cultural values concerning the position of women in society links to his likelihood of committing uroxicide. So if she's known enough, if she's high enough in society, basically. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, all that shit was really fucked up. Um, like I said, I did two, like, semi-shallow dives this week. Um... So I guess I will get into them now. My first little shallow dive, her name is Omaima Ari Nelson. And the entire time I was reading this story, all I could think of was Aunt Jemima. <laughs> so oh forgive me God. if I slip up. <laughs> well, it's kind of funny that you say that because didn't she do all her shit on like Thanksgiving or something like that? Or she got in trouble on Thanksgiving or something like that? You will see, but yes. Okay. What does that have to do with maple syrup? Well, I don't know. My family always makes a big-ass thing of pancakes. So I was kind of relating the maple syrup with the fat kid to the pancakes. You know? <laughs> to be fair, I don't really have a family, so I have yeah. nothing to relate it to. You do have a family, fool. You got my family. Okay, it's not mine, though. This yeah. is a discussion for a later Anyways. time. Omaima Ari Nelson, Aunt Jemima, was born and raised in Egypt, surviving a brutal childhood. She was the victim of female circumcision as a child, which I believe is where they actually, like, cut out the clitoris. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know why the reason they do this is so sex is painful for women. And they don't go out seeking it. No. So that's what happened when she was a little kid. She suffered lots of emotional and physical abuse as well. She immigrated to the United States in 1986, and I read in a few places that she was a model. I don't know if she ever got super famous, but she did do modeling work. At 23, she met her husband, Bill Nelson. He was 56 years old. He was a pilot. They met in October 1991, and the couple married within days of meeting. So, relating back to how I was saying, like, couples that are farther in age have a greater risk and all that, yeah. Aunt Jemima would later claim that during the couple's month-long union, she suffered sexual abuse by her husband. So he was horrible from the get-go. They got married within a few days. He was raping her. He was being physically abusive and emotionally abusive. He was bad news. 
Omaima claimed that on Thanksgiving Day, there you go, 1991, Bill Hicks sexually assaulted her in the Costa Mesa, California apartment that they owned. Following this, Omaima stabbed Bill with scissors and then began beating him with a clothes iron. Yeah, I do remember this. Yes. And that was her side of the story, and then it kind of depends on which side of the defense that you believe. Um, if you are believing those who are trying to prosecute Omaima for the murder, then they were saying that she tied him up. They were going to do some, like, BDSM kinky shit because they were into that. You do you. Have fun. No kinky shame. But she had tied him up for that reason and then murdered her. But then her story was like, no, he tried to rape me. And so I murdered him. Um, after finally killing him, though, she began dismembering his body. So it's not like she called the cops. She started cutting him apart. She used a cleaver and kitchen knives for this. Omaima was a really small lady. She was just over five feet tall, so she's about my size. And there was no feasible way that she could pick up her six foot four, two hundred and thirty pound husband's dead body without dismembering him first. So I'll take note of that. What are you like, six four, two hundred sixty pounds? About the same size. All right, duly noted. <laughs> Super happy you picked this case. Um, somebody will make a podcast about you if you do it, and I'll make fun of your name. Oh, and I'll be so excited. You'll be dead. You can't make fun of it. She skinned his <laughs> torso. <laughs> uh, that's not funny, but how creepy is that? She then boiled his head and, his, and fried his hands in oil to remove his fingerprints. And she shoved all of this shit in the freezer. So what, why would you, why would you boil the head and the hands and then just put them in the freezer? I don't, that's what so she did. cool down. That's know. what she did. Okay, so they could cool down. That at least makes sense. She then <laughs> mixed up pieces of his body parts with whatever leftover Thanksgiving turkey and stuffing and shit that she had and threw it into a garbage bag, hoping that somebody would look in and be like, oh, turkey, and not know that it was human body. She decided to attempt to dispose of the rest of him in the garbage disposal, which did not work very well. Her neighbors claimed that they heard the disposal unit running for days after the time of Bill's death. So, like, all of Thanksgiving weekend, the neighbors were like, yeah, the garbage disposal was running, like, 24-7. Yeah. She reportedly castrated him in revenge for his sexual assaults, which, like, that's the one thing that I'm like, Fuck yeah! I don't condone anything, but he raped her over and over again, so she literally like, cut off his junk and was like, Fuck you, bro! During the dismemberment, she specifically removed the sexual organs as punishment to her husband for the alleged sexual and emotional abuse she endured from him. She told her psychiatrist that she had cooked her husband's ribs in barbecue sauce and eaten them, but she later denied this. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure she ate some of him. Omaima hit up her ex-boyfriend to help her dispose of the body, which she would in turn pay him 75k to do. His response to this was like, oh yeah, for sure he's like, you know, just head home, back to your apartment, I'll meet you there with my truck, and he just promptly called the police and ratted her out. Good on you. When cops showed up on the scene, they could only account for 100 pounds of bill, which means there was another 130 pounds out there somewhere missing. So that was either eaten by Omaima disposed of without ever being found in garbage bags or a garbage disposal or a combination of the both. I think a combination of the both is probably what happened. Omaima was arrested on suspicion of murder in 
December of 1991, and her trial began almost exactly one year later on December 1st, 1992. She was convicted of second-degree murder on January 12, 1993, and she was sentenced to 28 years to life in prison. The reason she could not be convicted of first-degree murder was insufficient evidence on premeditation. The jury had no evidence to go off of that she had planned this previously, and it was a heat of the, and it was not a heat of the moment decision. Which, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. It kind of seems like she snapped and went crazy. Fun fact: Omaima is in the state prison in Chowchilla, California. Chow Town, which is not far from us. Omaima first became eligible for parole in 06, but was denied when commissioners found her unpredictable and a serious threat to public safety. She became eligible again in 2011, but was denied by the parole board again, citing that she had not taken responsibility for the murder, and she would not be a productive citizen if she were freed. She will not be able to seek parole again in 2026. That's the next time she can seek it. So that's Amima. 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 I also have what the fuck is her name? Stacy Caster, who's just as crazy, if not more crazy. Stacy met her husband Michael Wallace when she was seventeen in nineteen eighty-five, and they bonded immediately. Caster felt that Wallace was her true love. The couple married and had their first daughter, Ashley, in 1988, and in 1991, they had a second daughter, Brie, which literally is spelled exactly the same way I spell it, and I don't spell it a super normal way. Interesting. B-R-E-E. Castor was employed by an ambulance dispatch company while Wallace worked nights as a mechanic, but the family had little money. According to Castor, Wallace was very close to Bree, showing a favoritism that Castor made up for by becoming best friends with elder daughter Ashley. So each parent kind of had a relationship with each daughter. In spite of their closeness with their children, the couple grew apart, and it was rumored that each, cu- that each part of the couple was also having an affair. In late 1999, Wallace began feeling intermittently ill. Family members um, remember him acting unsteady variously, coughing and seeming swollen in his face and his neck. As his inexplicable sickness persisted over the holiday season, his family encouraged him to seek medical care. But he actually died in early 2000 before he could do so. (coughs) So he just kind of died out of the blue. Their daughter Ashley was 11 at the time and had had been alone with him when he passed away. She blamed herself for his death. She had noticed his ill appearance that day but thought nothing of it, which, poor little baby, Ashley, you had nothing to do with that. Doctors told Castor that Wallace died of a heart attack, though Wallace's sister was skeptical of the heart attack um, being a cause of death. She had requested a second autopsy for Wallace's corpse. And Stacy had refused. So the wife was like, no, fuck off, sister-in-law. We're not going to have him autopsied. I believe that it was a heart attack. Castor said she believed the doctors were correct about Wallace's demise. After all, Castor is the next of kin and has say-so on, you know, that kind of shit, unfortunately. In 03, Castor married David Castor. That's where she got her last name. In 2005, at 2 p.m. one afternoon, Castor called her local sheriff's office to tell them that her husband had locked himself in their bedroom for a day following an argument and was not responding to his cell phone. When he did not appear at their shared workplace, she had become worried. She claimed he was depressed. Unable to get a response, Sergeant Robert Willogbury of the Onogata, holy shit, County Sheriff's Department, 
Jake kicked in the door of the bedroom and found David Castor lying dead. Among the items near his body was a container of antifreeze and a half-full glass of bright green liquid. So the god Willoughby, the fucking sheriff, whatever the fuck his name is, <laughs> says he remembers that Castor screamed, He's not dead! He's not dead! So she put on quite a show. The coroner reported that David Castor had committed suicide through a self-administered lethal dose of antifreeze, but when police found Stacy Castor's fingerprints on the antifreeze glass and located a turkey baster that had David Castor's DNA on the tip, they began to suspect that Stacy Castor had engineered her husband's death. They believe Castor had used the turkey baster to force-feed him once he had became too physically weak. So, he had been sick for weeks, so they're thinking, like, okay, she's been, like, sneaking antifreeze into his drinks or his food or whatever, mm -hmm. and then once he got weak, she filled a turkey baster full of it and, like, shoved it in his mouth and force-fed it to him. So, jeez. I don't... I know this is all, like, fun and games and stuff, but if you marry somebody and you really love them, like, how do you force-feed them poison? I just... I... I... That's why Some I love this play shit. The law game. I know I can't wrap my head around yeah. it, but it's not about the law game. It's about like killing somebody that Long. you're supposed to love. Oh, gotcha. They plan it from the beginning. Oh, that's for even... money or whatever it may be. Oh, that makes me even more. Or unhappy. maybe they were in love, and then instead of them being the bear of bad news, they just say, "Ah, eh, fuck telling the truth. I'm just gonna kill him." Oh my god! Don't kill me. Nah, I'll just leave. You're statistically more likely to kill me than I am to kill you, though. Okay. Continue with your story, <laughs> it's please. true. The detectives on the case ordered wiretappings on Stacy's phone. They listened in on calls for any, like, unusual conversations. In addition, they set up cameras overlooking Castor's house and her husband's gravesite. Actually, both of her husband's gravesites, because they were buried next to each other because she's a fucking weird-ass piece of shit. Jesus. It was at her request. She wanted them both next to each other. Detectives reasoned that if Castor was truly genuine about her love for her past husband, she would eventually visit the grave at some point, Was which, like, no fucking shit. They wanted to observe her behavior while she was there. Um, Stacy, however, never visited either of the grave sites at all. The investigators soon felt the only way to prove Stacy was responsible for both homicides was to have Wallace's body exhumed. A toxicology screening ruled that Wallace had also been killed through antifreeze poisoning. In September 2007, as evidence steadily piled against Castor as having murdered her past husband, she began to panic. After she learned police had exhumed Wallace's body and had found antifreeze traces in his remains, she was believed to have devised a plan to set up her daughter Ashley for the murders, which is supposed to be like her best friend or whatever. Like, that's her daughter, that's her favorite. How much of a piece of shit do you have to be? Um, you're scared of being caught for the crime that you committed. And now you're going to bring your daughter into it and affect her entire life just because you're scared. Like, you're disgusting. You're gross. On Ashley's first day of college, investigators came to her school to question her about her father's death and to inform her that she had been poisoned instead of having died from a heart attack. He had. Excuse me. Um, and upset Ashley called her mother, Stacy. Soon after, she says that Stacy invited her to go home and drink together. Castor said that they had been through enough emotional stress and needed to relax. Ashley agreed because, you know, Stacy was not only her mother, but her friend, and drinking alcoholic beverages before she was 21 was obviously, like, super tempting to any teenager. It'd be tempting to me, too. Um, 
So in short, you know, this mother played on the fact that her daughter was a teenager and would not be able to turn down drinking with a parent. She knew Ashley couldn't say no because of how cool she thought it would be to, you know, do it with her mom. It's so upsetting. It's so fucked up. But that's what happened. The following day, Castor invited Ashley to drink together at home again. So sounds like she's, you know, slowly mm-hmm. poisoning her like the ex-husband. She says that her mother offered her a nasty-tasting drink that at first she refused but eventually drank because she trusted Stacy because she kept, like, you know, kind of poking at her, too. And she's young, so she's like, you know, alcohol tastes like shit, which it does. 17 hours later, Ashley was found comatose on her bed by her younger sister. Stacy made the 911 call. Ashley's sister left her side for a moment, and when she returned, she found a suicide note beside Ashley. So this thing just kind of, like, appeared. It was not there when she first found her, this, the sister. The note appeared to be in Ashley's... Oh, wait. The note appeared to be Ashley's murder confession, in which she admits to having killed her father and stepfather. Castor quickly took the note from um, her sister and later gave it to the paramedics that responded to her. <coughs> Bless you. <coughs> Bless you again. Thank you, thank you. Tess revealed that potentially fatal painkillers had been found in Ashley's system and that she most likely would have died if she had not been brought to the hospital. Like, it was within a few minutes. When Ashley awakened, the police were questioning her about the murders and suicide note found beside her, and that was, you know, she didn't... The last thing she remembered was her mother making her an alcoholic drink, giving it to her, and that was it. She told the officer she did not write the note and was confused about their questions and accusations, and by the way, the note was typed. For two years, investigators had collected evidence against Castor for the deaths of her husbands. In 07, she was arrested for second-degree murder and David's death and for attempting to murder Ashley. Prosecutor District Attorney William Fitzpatrick and Chief Assistant District Attorney Christine Garvey argued that Castor's quote-unquote suicide had never made sense given to the lack of his fingerprints on the glass or container tainted with ethanol glycol which do better he's dead put his hands on the bottle his fingerprints will stay i'll proceed a toxic substance found in antifreeze and the turkey baster found in the kitchen and um like the garbage can in the kitchen bared his dna which is strange they felt that this suggested that he was force-fed the antifreeze Given evidence of the evolution of David Castor's illness, they concluded that Castor had for four days fed her husband antifreeze through the baster before trying to make it look like suicide. So he was weak, and then she, you know, killed him off. She had said that her husband got the, or no, she had said she got the idea to kill her husband with antifreeze while watching a news report about Lynn Turner, who married two past lovers by using that poison. (laughs) Which, okay. Um... And, again, she tried to frame her own daughter, Ashley, for the murder of her dad, which is pretty fucking crazy. Fucking nuts. So, those are my two shallow dives. Never cheat on me. I'll kill you. There you go. Oh, okay. Oh, wait. Yeah, you're not done, Trunky. You still got a bunch of notes left. Oh, no. Okay. Alright, prosecutors argued that the computer-generated note where Ashley confessed to killing <sighs> Wallace and David had actually been written by Castor. What? Oh, so that, that's my short story. <laughs> two pages of notes to go. I didn't know <laughs> that there was more. I'm running out of time. I'm sorry. You are, but get going. Fuck. Okay. 
So Ashley was 11 at the time of her father's death, which, you know, that's very rare that an 11-year-old will kill their father. So they were kind of like, meh. And when brought on the stand, she testified that she did not murder either her father or her stepfather, nor did she write the suicide note. The prosecutors presented evidence showing how antifreeze poisoning can be identified from the growth of calcium oxalate crystals in the kidneys, and that this was seen with examination of Wallace and Davis's body. So it was, like, proven that this is what they died from. In addition, they noted money as one of the main reasons Castor murdered her husbands. She had murdered her husbands partly to collect their life insurance and estates and had changed David's will to exclude his son by a previous marriage from the money left to him by David. So she was like, nope, he's not in a family, he's not me, fuck off. In 05, people started to put it together. Cayugua County Sheriff David Gould said, if Mr. Wallace had been cremated or if Mr. Castor had not died, we would never know that either were a homicide. Having searched Castor's computer, prosecutors had found several drafts of the suicide note Ashley was accused of writing, so she was dumb enough to leave, like, rough drafts of this shit on her computer. They argued that the suicide attempt had actually been a planned-out murder attempt by Castor against Ashley. On the stand, Ashley retold how her mother had convinced her to drink the two nights before she almost died. She repeated that she only drank the nasty-tasting beverage because she trusted her mother. She maintained her innocence of the two murders and the writing of the note. So she was like, I literally just took booze from my mom. Like, I don't know what you want from me. Castor's defense team, attorneys Charles Keller and Todd Smith, um, was set on creating reasonable doubt in the jury's minds about Castor having committed the murders. They wanted to poke holes in Ashley's version of what happened and prove that she could have been capable of murder at age 11. They noted Ashley's father, Wallace, showing favoritism towards his younger daughter rather than Ashley and cited jealousy as a possible motive for Ashley having murdered at such a young age. For her stepfather, they noted his and Ashley's tumultuous relationship and how they did not get along with each other. Castor's mother believed her granddaughter Ashley to be guilty, which I thought was a trip. In a final attempt to convince the jury that she was not guilty, Castor took the stand. So the grandmother was even like, yeah, the 11-year-old did it. Which, she didn't. That's right. not what happened. Um. Oh, God. On cross-examination, Fitzpatrick pointed out what he felt were flaws in Castor's version of that night. She maintained that it was Ashley who murdered Wallace and David, though she would not speculate about motives beyond implying that her daughter might be mentally ill. Fitzpatrick pointed out that Ashley's mother had never sought therapy for her and that at 21, Ashley exhibited no sign of mental illness. So, you know, Ashley was good. She never had any mental illness that had popped up or anything. She's like, I don't understand. Fitzpatrick asserted that Castor's behavior during David Castor and Ashley's illnesses made no sense. Given the years she had worked for a paramedics company, she did not seek care for Ashley. Um, for 17 hours and indicated that David Castor, who was staggering and vomiting and unable to stand, looked okay. So in both of those cases, she was like, oh, Ashley's fine. I've been a paramedic before. She's good. Or, you know, oh, David's fine. He's staggering, but he's fine. So she was saying, like, she has that background and she's not asserting that something's wrong. Likewise, he questions how a woman who had lost two husbands to poisoning would not seek help for a daughter in Ashley's state, which, duh, you've lost two people, your daughter's acting kind of weird, wouldn't you call the cops or the paramedics? 
Fitzpatrick frequently shouted at Castor, inspiring Castor's defense attorney, Charles Keller, to frequently object and even to request a mistrial. Prosecutors brought up another piece of damaging evidence against Castor when they cited having heard typing sounds while Castor was on the phone with 911. So that's like the typing sounds of writing the suicide note, essentially, is what they're saying. On February 5th, 2009, Castor was found guilty of second-degree murder and the poisoning death of David and of the attempted second-degree murder and overdosing of her daughter Ashley with drugs and vodka. With a jam-packed courtroom, most eyes were focused on Castor. She, however, had her eyes closed as the verdict was read. Her lead defense counsel, Keller, announced that Castor would appeal the verdict, including the challenging... Um, or, no, including challenging would appeal the verdict... Blah, 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 including challenging the inclusion of evidence regarding the death of her first husband, for which Castor had not been charged. So, she basically got off free on the first one. On March 5th, 05, 2009, at Castor's sen sentencing, Chief Assistant District Attorney Christine Garvey asked Fahey to impose the maximum consecutive sentences because of the brutality of David's death. Further, he criticized how Castor had partied in her backyard with friends like nothing was happening, as Ashley was comatose in her room, which is so unfathomable and so fucked up. She is cold, calculating, and without any emotion for what she has done. Um, human life is sacred. Stacy Castor places no value on human life, not even her own flesh and blood. To Stacy Castor, human beings are disposable, which I agree with. Let's see. The trial lasted for four weeks. An emotional... Ashley told the judge she hated her mother for ruining so many people's lives, but still loved her for the bond she originally had with her, which, oh my god, ow, so horrible. This was her ending statement in the court trial. I never knew what hate was until now. Even though I do hate her, I still love her at the same time. That bothers me. It's so confusing. How can you hate someone and love someone at the same time? I just wish that she would say sorry for everything she did, including all the lies. As horrible as it makes me feel, this is goodbye, Mom. As hard as you tried, I survived, and I will survive, because now I'm surrounded by people that love me. I'm going to do good things in this world despite making me, in every sense of the world, an orphan. Fitzpatrick said Castor will have to serve at least 51 years behind bars before she's eligible parole, and, you know, given her age, she will very likely be dead by the time she ever will have the opportunity to be released from prison. Stacy's currently serving her sentence at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in Westchester County in New York. I have more notes. I've talked too long. Go right ahead, my love. You're fucking 42 minutes talking. Oh, my God. Jesus Christ. I now know. I'm going to have to shorten up mine. I know. So all these people actually listen. <laughs> Anyways, my story is about Kelly Kutran. Kutran. Yeah. She was 35. And she was currently serving time for her two ori or for her original crime when, sorry, she was, yeah, she was serving time. For her two original crimes when her brother, Colton Gabian, had told authorities he believes his sister had slaughtered at least nine victims. So, nine victims plus the two. So, that's 11 victims. What? And that she had been leaving corpses behind or hidden in Michigan, Indiana, Tennessee, and Minnesota. If these allegations are proved to be true proven to be true that telly is 11 
which would make her one of the most notorious female serial killers in modern America. Damn, bitch. How do I not know her name? She's got, she has like, fuck it. She's on Snapped, the television show. I think it's like season 24, episode like 16 or some shit like that. I have to go watch it. Okay. And then she has like two documentaries out and there's a bunch of shit. It's fucking crazy. So, uh, she was originally convicted and sentenced to 65 years in prison after pleading guilty to her husband's, uh, murder in 2006. Okay. I believe. I think actually I got those wrong. Sorry, no, 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 I got that wrong. Kelly's uh, conviction, or first conviction was in 2004 for murdering uh, Chris Reagan. Okay. And that was one of her lovers that she actually lured back to her home. And Jason, which is Kelly's husband, found them in bed. He (gasps) shot him in the fucking head, and then the couple dismembered reagan's body together hid his remains in the wood as well as kept some of his remains my mouth is wide open right now oh my god yeah because there's allegations from friends and family that kelly actually chopped up some of reagan's uh, remains and served it to them as meat at a barbecue what oh my god this case is awesome okay so she was already she was already convicted i will say though human meat is supposed to be like sweet and tasty Amazing. Continue. Yeah. So she already got convicted of that murder. And then later, like two years later, she, or sorry, she wasn't convicted, but she murdered her husband two years later and then got convicted of the, of the Chris Reagan. Okay. And then admitted to murdering her husband. Oh, so Jason. she just like spilled her shit. Pretty much. Okay. And what happened was she actually admitted to giving Jason her husband, which was he was like thirty seven or something like that. And she admitted to giving him a like an intentional lethal injection of heroin. And then smothering him to death with a pillow. Were they heroin users? I don't think so, no. Oh. I didn't really, talk, I didn't really get into that. I was they going to They had to have been. How does he, like, allow her to just shoot him up, then? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. They probably used heroin, and she was like, I'm going to get him a fat ha- or fat-ass dose, mm-hmm. and then just, So oh, since uh, Kelly plead guilt, pled guilty, she actually uh, had, like, specific th- things that she, you know, she requested in her pl- uh, plea agreement, and state authority or state prosecutors actually you know were cool with it and one of them was was that the state of indiana can never charge her with any other additional murders which meant that kelly is still to date free to talk about uh all any other murders that were in the state of indiana without fear of legal uh, penalties oh my god okay oh my god yeah and she still hasn't made any comments on the cannibalism uh, allegations. Ah, come on. Yet. And everybody's kind of saying, like, Kelly murdered Jason two years after killing uh, Chris Reagan because she still missed her possible barbecued boyfriend and blamed her husband for taking away the only good thing in her life. Oh. Those, are, those weren't Kelly's words or anything like that. And like I said already, that she has an episode on snapped what i like the i guess i think it's i think it said like season 24 or some crazy shit like that or like season 16 episode 24 or some shit like that but uh next month in july 
there's going to be a very like in-depth documentary about the nine alligated murders across those four Midwest states. Did you not even go into like the murder murders though? I'm so sad. I don't know. No. Hmm. Not really. Okay. I mean, what do you want me to say? Is that Jason and her are fucking and she grabbed the needle from the fucking nightstand and stabbed him in the oh, neck? Oh, is that what happened? No, it's not what happened. I want to know what happened. All right, then watch the fucking documentary or Snapped or the other 18 other documentaries that are on this woman. Okay. You fucking took forever to do your damn episode, so boom. I got mine done in seven minutes. What? That's too quick. Too quick? It's fucking 47 minutes long already. We're yeah, keeping it short and quick. It's a mini-sode. It's not a mini-sode. It's an hour long. Almost an it, hour long. Okay, it's. what else? Anything else? No, that's it. That's it? Y'all. Yep. Your story's so short. Nope. I feel like I it's cut it all, looking I, I cut at it. It is longer. I just cut it all down. I guess I went too long, and you mm-hmm. went too short, so we evened out at a good hour. Well, I guess that's it, peeps. I'm going to go ahead and take the laptop with me, and I'll be releasing this episode out to us Monday night, Tuesday morning. I guess there is kind of one more thing that I could add in. Okay, on. thank you. She's, uh, Kelly said that Jason and her executed Reagan as part of a pact that they had made on their wedding night. It was uh, kill off anyone involved in their extra material affairs. Material. Mitral. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, what I said. So Material. if you cheat, Mitral. we're just going to kill them and it'll be fine? Pretty much. We're going to kill them together and it's going to be fine. Oh. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I don't like that. And she was trying to like, I don't believe she was trying to fool anybody. I think she was pretty fucking crazy and all fucked up. And hence why her brother called into authorities and was like, yeah, yeah there's probably more people now that I'm thinking about it. You know what I mean? Ugh. And uh, she, uh, they're trying, her a defense team is pretty much trying to plead, you know, the insane thing that she was insanity. fucking. Insanity bullshit, yeah. But she got deemed competent to stay in trial. And, yeah, so she was already in prison for killing Reagan and then got convicted of killing her husband too. Holy shit. Yeah, and then her brother called in. Oh, my God. Yeah, and then that Chris Reagan's ex-girlfriend pretty much, you know, was, like, one of the key witnesses to putting Crazy Kelly behind bars. Crazy Kelly. <laughs> Aunt Jemima and Crazy Kelly. Anyways, thank you guys for listening. We're done. Thank you. I'm We're done. not quite done yet. Hang on for one second. I'm done. She's We not. do have Facebook, Booze Bullshit and True Crime. Instagram, Booze Bullshit and True Crime. It really helps if you follow. Please interact. Post about things you want to hear. You can also send us your own stories paranormal stuff hometown murder stuff weird shit found in walls just weird shit in general booze bs and true crime at gmail.com that's booze bs as in bullshit and true crime spelled out at gmail.com send us all that shit thank you for listening we love you i'm drunk bye-bye bye-bye lake time